for the gift of our lives and for the gift of yourself in Mass this morning. Um, let us take the life that we receive from you. Let it fill our being, heal us, take away our sins, and carry you forward in all that we do. Help us to make you present. Um, give us the courage to do that, a deeper faith, um, so that others will know you through us. Help us to do that. Um, and help us to live this literature, whatever light it, um, it throws on our lives. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Okay, this is a surprise. <clears throat> Um, did everybody sign up that sh can I can I can I get it did you all sign it I wanted to get everybody on a list again did you all do it last week yes you all did can I have that is this is this ours this is the evening oh this is here <coughs> Peter, can you, if you don't mind, can you ask me for phone numbers and emails so we can contact people? This is, this is a surprise for Linda. In my beginning is my end. One of the major lines of um, um, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. I've warned you, I'm going to read the Four Quartets when we do Dante, and they're not short, but they're... Mm, the Four Quartets is one of the most extraordinary poems of the 20th century. Linda has an ear for it. She asks, so I'm... That's, that was a theme that I told you Eliot took from Dante. And my argument here is that Dante got it from Virgil. Because we'll learn, when, when we get to Italy, we'll find out. We get hints of it all along. <coughs> and going on to Italy, where the gods have been sending him, He's going back to his beginnings because he will find out that the, the ones who founded Troy, their ancestors actually came from Italy. So this whole sense that as one approaches one's end, he finds himself going back to his beginnings, his origins. Dante makes that absolutely clear. So does Virgil here. Well, that's going to become more and more of a concern as we get closer to Italy. But you know this, we've been getting these hints. The gods are telling him, giving him hints to go back to um, um, where your line began. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's obscure to him, but it becomes clearer and clearer as he moves on. It's one of the great themes of Eliot's Four Quartets. In my beginning is my end. It's from East Coker, Bert Norton. Or say that the end precedes the beginning, and the end and the beginning were always there before the beginning and after the end. And all is always now. That's super important. This is from Little Gidding. There are four quartets. Uh, I've taken passages from three. What we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. The end is where we start from. Huh? Paradoxical is that? Mm -hmm. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. This for you. 
Here's the poem today we're doing. We're doing um, Richard Wilbur's Love Causes to Things of the World. Richard Wilbur, if I remember correctly, is our second poet laureate. We only recently instituted a, a national laureate program, and um, I think Wilbur was our second. Um, he's a contemporary poet, um, an extraordinary poet in lots of ways. Um, he, he's, I don't know what his, I, I don't know if he's Catholic. I'm not, I'm not sure, actually. I should know that, but I don't. But it's, it's clear to me that everything about his sensibilities, it's hard to believe he's not Catholic. In this poem, he's saying that human beings were made to love, and the natural object of our love are things of the world, that we have to turn our love to actual things. We were meant to love each other. Human beings were, meant, were, were created to love and be loved. We're supposed to, the image of that is the Trinity. That's the source of our beliefs, that there's, the nature of love is indwelling. We're not isolated creatures. And in that sense, Wilbur stands, I mean, he has the Catholic, the, the sensibility of the Catholic, whether he is or not. So in this poem, it, it's called Love, it's called Love Calls Us to Things of the World. He describes this guy, whether it's him or a person, a persona, waking up, coming out of sleep, and in that first moment in, in that gray, between state of mind where he's coming out of sleep and the unconscious <coughs> parts of our souls, he looks out at the laundry outside the window, and so he brings that um, mystical, obscure sort of consciousness from a dream state to bear on his perceptions, and what he sees is what the poem is about. So it's that in-between state where he's actually looking at, where he's looking at actual physical objects, but he's bringing to it something of that, what in our world today we would call the unconscious. And you should know by now that the poets are the ones who probe that. They're the ones who enter that world better than all of us. Freud said it, and I'm not a fan of Freud's, but he said, we got it all from the poets. The poets are the ones who take us there. You start again. Richard Wilbur, Love Calls Us to Things of the World, This World. The eyes open to a cry of pulleys, and spirited from sleep, the astounded soul hangs for a moment, bodiless and simple as false dawn. Outside the open window, the morning air is all awash with angels, some are in bed sheets, some are in blouses. Some are in smocks, but truly there, there they are. Now they are rising together in their calm swells of housing feeling, filling whatever they wear with the deep joy of their impersonal breathing. Now they are flying in place, conveying the terrible speed of their omnipresence, moving and staying like white water. And now of a sudden they swoon down into so rapt a quiet that nobody seems to be there. The soul shrinks from all that it is about to remember from the punctual rape of every blessed day and cries, Oh, let there be nothing on earth but laundry, nothing but rosy hands in the rising steam and clear dances done in the sight of heaven. Yet as the sun acknowledges with a warm look the world's hunks and colors, 
the soul descends once more in bitter love to accept the waking body, saying now, in a changed voice, as the man yawns and rises, bring them down from their ruddy gallows, that there be clean linen for the backs of thieves, that lovers go fresh and sweet to be undone, and the heaviest nuns walk in a pure floating of dark habits, keeping their difficult balance. It's interesting. It's like the incarnation. I mean, it's very incarnational. It's saying, we, we, the natural place for us is not this dream state. It's to come into this world, which we experience like a rape. Because to enter this world is going to do a violence to our bodies. We are incarnational creatures. We are meant to be, we're not angels. We're meant to be in the world loving things, physical things. They're, they're what grab our desires, our loves. <laughs> okay, one last thing before we start, because I didn't get this done last time and I should have. Where does Aeneas come from? Is he a real historical person? Of course he is. We know that because he was in the Iliad. Everybody heard the humor of that. Here, here's, this is how good a, a I, if you think about Virgil as you move through him, one of the things you have to say about him is there probably was no better reader of Homer ever than Virgil. He has so taken him into the poem. Um, what, do we know, what do we know about Rome? The great concern of this course is Rome. That, um, that the whole point of this book is the founding of Rome and what Rome is that, that um, sets Rome apart from all these other cities that Aeneas is going to try to found. And um, we'll get some sense, we'll begin to get some sense of what that is today when we look at what goes on in the first few books. What is Rome? What Rome's a, um, a collection of buildings on a, a, a piece of earth that's marked by boundaries. And in that sense, it's exactly like every other city in the world. But no, I mean, what, what Virgil's going to make us aware of is that city, like Homer already, in, you know, Odysseus, man of many minds, went to many cities. He learned something. Each city that we looked at in the, in the Odyssey had a different spirit, a different soul. So we can say that cities have souls. They're, they're defined as a spirit of people. New York is different from Dallas or Paris or Mecca or Tokyo. Um, Rome is um, different, and I, I, I don't want to get ahead, so I'll leave, I'll leave that with a question mark. How, how is Rome different? What, what sets Rome apart from other cities? We, we learn something about Rome from the Aeneid, and this is the source, the literary source, um, from which Virgil gets his character, Aeneas. This is in the 20th book of the Iliad, lines 200 and 300. So if you want to check this out, you can go back to the Iliad. In the 20th chapter of the Iliad, remember, Aeneas is returned to battle a psychomachia takes place. The gods enter the world. Nature is dislocated everywhere. It's, it's one of the ways Homer is showing us that the turbulence 
um, that's involved whenever a human being makes the kind of radical decision that Achilles did. That in some sense, nature works with him. There's this great turbulence everywhere. You remember, the graves were open, the gods go to war. And if you remember the outcome of that, the, the Western gods defeat the Eastern, primarily. And, it, and it's all in the nature of the cognitive and rational over the appetitive. Remember, Hera and Athena defeat um, Diana and um, Ares and Aphrodite, the, the ones of the, the raw passions. So it's like they're the ones who take what's in nature and make something more out of them because of their wisdom um, and law. Hera is the goddess of the hearth, the goddess of marriage. Diana is the virgin goddess. She's the one who's overcome by all those raw passions in a woman are transformed in marriage. And so um, we learn something about the divine nature and its workings in nature there. In that fight, in that episode, remember, once he enters the battle, nobody can, nobody can touch him. He's, he's invulnerable almost. Um, he goes against Aeneas. Aeneas is about ready to pick up a rock um, and throw it. And Homer's description is that if he were allowed to go through with it, Achilles would kill him and he would die. And in that moment, Apollo comes and picks up Aeneas and whisks him off. <coughs> Aeneas is one of the great heroes of the Iliad with um, Sarpedon and Hector. Hector and Sarpedon and Aeneas are probably the greatest heroes along with Paris. It's hard to talk about as a hero, but, um, but um, one of the great heroes on the Trojan side, and he's rescued in that moment. This is Homer. This is Aeneas speaking to Achilles in this moment, the way men do when they're challenging each other. Son of Peleus, never hope by words to frighten me as if I were a baby. I myself understand well enough how to speak in vituperation and how to make insults. You and I know each other's birth. We both know our parents since we've heard the lies of their fame from mortal men. Only I have never with my eyes seen your parents. For you, they say, are the issue of blameless Peleus and that your mother was Thetis, the sea's lady. I, in turn, claim that I am son of great-hearted Anchises, but that my mother was Aphrodite and that of these parents, one group or the other will have a dear son to mourn for this day. One of those goddesses is going to lose a son in this battle. She's, his mother's Aphrodite. In the Roman world, what's the name of that? His mother. Venus. Venus. Now think about the difference. Aphrodite tends to be associated with erotic love. Venus is closer to what we know as Christian love. It's, it's more maternal, more nurturing. Um, so um, Venus's, Aeneas's mother is the goddess of love in the Roman world. That's not a small thing. Because one of the things, we'll see it more and more as we move along, one of the things that motivates, one of the things that we have to see is moving Aeneas is love. And a kind of love that's growing and unfolding. As he moves away from this older world, he grows more and more into what we have to call something close to the kind of love that Christ shows us. Shortly after this, um, as I said, Apollo comes and saves Aeneas. He takes him away, and we get this description. 
Um, Poseidon cries out to the other gods. They don't want to, he doesn't want to see uh, this happen. Come now, let us ourselves get him away from death for fear. The son of Kronos may be angered if now Achilles kills this man. And here's the crucial line. This is book 20, lines 300, 305. It is destined that he shall be the survivor, that the generation of Dardanos shall not die. Without seed obliterated, since Dardanus was dearest to Cronides, Cronus, the whole line of the Cronus family, all of his sons that had been born to him from mortal women, the line of Dardanus, we keep, we'll keep getting this in the Aeneid, the line of Dardanus. In fact, he's going to go back to that line. Well, what do we learn here about Rome? If Aeneas is the founder of Rome, this is a city that, whose line will never die out. So this is, now we haven't gotten to that point yet, but what we've learned is that one of the qualities that will define Rome is its timelessness. It's, it, it's the eternal city. It will never die out. So right away, before we even get into the Aeneid, we're, we, we've been given a hint of one of the things that will set Rome apart from other cities. That's why I call these other cities dying cities. It's just a way of setting the two off against each other. <clears throat> okay, quick review, and I want to make this really quick. Last week, um, last week, we talked about, I just did a quick review about the nature of prophecy, the, the prophetic element of literature. I don't think we're going to get it here, but. Um, and I've claimed from the beginning that literature has a prophetic quality, and it's prophetic in a number of ways. The two major ways that I described were that it it's not prophecy from God. It's, it's not God speaking through the prophets. I'm saying that it has a pr prophetic element on this side the worldly side of prophecy. In this sense, all great prophecy, Isaiah, all of them, Micah, any of them, reveal things to men that, um, that they don't want to see. They, they, sh they show us things about ourselves that too often we don't want to see because they're too painful. So Homer, I've been arguing, reveals things t about ourselves to us that are hard to see. But that's one of the values because it's really important for us to see them if we're going to change and grow. That was the first. The second was that in, in so many ways they give us foreshadowings of Christ or even images of Christ. They show him working in nature. We talked about the images of Christ and Achilles, some aspects of him, some in Odysseus. In both of those poems, we reach a point that um, is similar to what we understand as the parousia. Remember, the second coming, the parousia. The parousia, the second coming. So, so many great works of literature deal with this thing. The return of the king, Tolkien. Mm -hmm. the, 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 who's it? White, the return of the king. Um, the, the, the action in the Iliad and the Odyssey come to these moments where both kings re-enter the world and change the world. Achilles comes in and settles the war. Odysseus returns home after he reveals himself. He kills the suitors. 
So the action in both are defined in terms of the return of the king. When each other returns, they're described as returning in his splendor. We read those lines in the Iliad where there's this luminous light coming from Achilles. It frightens, it terrifies the. And similarly in Odysseus, <clears throat> we're going to find the same thing in the Aeneid. Late in the Aeneid, Achilles, Aeneas will be taken away from the action, and when he returns, the, the war will reach a pitch. So the parousia, the, the coming of the king, this time, in the second coming, in splendor and glory, bringing judgment. Um, and in so many of the lyric poems, so many of the lyric poems we've read to, together have been about Christ, images of Christ, the wind hover, King Fisher's Catch Fire, the supernatural love, that poem about the little girl looking at her father, to me, which is such a beautiful poem. All of, all of Herbert's poems, The Altar, Love, Death, so many of the poems that we read. So over and over again, poets have been showing us um, these deeper things about ourselves, and in so many of them, we get, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for, signs, traces of Christ or the Spirit. Or So there's a prophetic element to great literature. The second that we covered last week was the claim that I've been making from the beginning that along with um, Genesis and Exodus, that the Iliad and the Odyssey are the founding works of Western civilization. All of them show God present in the world, and all of them show this great dignity to man, that God has created this creature that's just stunning in dignity. And I, I wanted to reinforce that because I, I, I've said that if we look at our view of the modern world after the scientific revolution and the Protestant Reformation, the view of, the, of our human nature is terribly shrunken. I asked this question, if we want to understand things, we've got to go back to beginnings. What was the view of man in the beginning? What is it now? The view of man in the beginning was that he was noble, he descended from the gods. The view of man now is that he's a, descend he's a descendant of apes and, you know, Big Bang. And, and the Protestant Reformation um, um, represents man as being fallen, completely depraved. He's depraved in essence. God's essence was ruined in man. The essence of man was ruined in the fall. So um, the image that we're given of man in the beginning is a very, very different one from the one we have of ourselves now. And it's important to recover that, to, to see that there is something extraordinary that God did in creating humans. Bob. Yeah. I don't want to take you off on a tangent, so you just say wait for class. Okay. You already know me. I can hear myself saying that. Go, go So ahead. when you, you have all these poems for us to read, mm -hmm. okay, if we don't, if I don't get it, even though an English major, mm -hmm. blah, 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 but if it, it doesn't speak to me, I don't get it. I'm asking, is it important to know the author no. in his background? No. Or do I just no. read poetry no. with an open heart yeah, and mind and that, get what I can that, from it? That, that, that. The latter. Yeah, this, this is really... This doesn't have the focus for our work that the epics have, because the point of this was to do these epics, but I've been offering these poems freely just as a way of supplementing this and to show you, hopefully to enhance your sense of poetry itself. That, okay. Because we, we're not doing lyrics. So I was just offering them to, 
um, to, to do what I set out to do, to, to try to strengthen our faith by, by giving everybody what the poets have given us in, in a way of trying to see Christ better and feel. Because I think one of the things poets do is help us to feel things that, that they help us to see. So this other stuff to me is that I'm not asking, I'm not expecting anything, I'm not asking you to do it to what you will. My hope is that periodically you'll go back and reread them because I believe that when you go back and reread your poems, they get clearer and clearer in time. I think I think I probably told you that um, first time. Did I tell you my first experience of poetry at UC Berkeley when I was an under? I flunked out in my freshman year of college, and then went back to JC and then transferred to Berkeley, where Suzanne and I met. I met JC. Junior college. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> in, in, in California. <laughs> anyway, that's that's where Suzanne and I, Suzanne and I met. Um, I, I, sh I don't. Want, I should not. You should not do this to me. Um, I just year after six months after we met, I, she had her her she used to write in a commonplace book, a notebook, and her opening line on the day. When we met, was who does, who's that guy think he is who just walked through the door right there? <laughs> I happened to sit next to her, and she, she said nothing but scorn for me. <laughs> you want me to get on track? Yeah. <laughs> um, and at, I played basketball in high school. I didn't grow up reading. Reading was not a part of my life at all. In at high all. school, yeah, I didn't. I mean, I, I got really good grades, but doing nothing. Um, in at Berkeley, when I transferred in my First semester there, I took a course in lit, crit, literary criticism, which was a requirement for the major, from a teacher, I, one of the great teachers in my life. I really admired him a lot. And we did some poetry. I never did poetry in high school, and we did some poems. Gerard Manny Hopkins was, I think, one of them. I could not understand. Could not. I was so. This was in English. I mean, I, I was a junior in college. How did you? Become a junior in college and not read English because it's your native language. I mean, that's how troubled I was. And I went to him and said, I can't make sense of this poetry. He said, poetry consists of words that form statements, words that, that form sentences that make statements about human experience. Exactly his words. It just sort of demystified. And from that point on, I, I felt as if I could. But my first experience of poetry was, Oh, what, what are these? You know, this is English. So I don't expect anybody to, you know, I don't want to take time on the lyrics because it's not, I, it's my way of just trying to introduce something that I think is really valuable and lost in our world and hopefully will strengthen, you know, what we do together, our minds and our hearts. So, no, just go back and reread them periodically because they're, and read them, I mean, in, in the spirit which Tom does, read them aloud. Sit down and read them and speak them aloud, because it makes a difference. Bob, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this one that you read today every time before I hang my laundry. <laughs> it'll be a spiritual experience. Yes. <laughs> well, sometime, make sure you fit in there, that you read that just as soon as you get up, when sleep is still on you, and your, your perceptions of the world are obscure and foggy and, and mystical, and you can see angels in the laundry, too. You don't want to lose that. Usually they say to appreciate a poem, the poet has to read it. 
Can somebody mm -hmm. that's oh okay no, because that's impossible. No, yeah. Here, I don't you that. read it to us. No, yeah. All right, I'll try to lose it. The third point was that we have to take language more seriously than we do. Um, it's through words that the poet brings these other words up, and I've been making this argument, that the poet is the seer of distances. He's the one who finds in near things, things far off. That he brings those two things together in distances. Another way of put, putting this is that he shows us multiple levels to reality. I mean, it's obvious in Homer. Nothing happens in Homer that doesn't involve the gods. He's constantly giving us images of this divine work going on in, in the affairs of men. And every one of the lyric poets have been doing that. So there's a prophetic quality to the poets because they, they find the ultimate causes of things in something up close. So they're the ones who, science doesn't do this, science cannot. Science always abstracts from the world. All branches of knowledge abstract from the world. They move from the concrete to rules or generalities or consistent laws. The poet always returns us to the concrete world. Every story brings us back to the concrete world as we know it, through our senses. So the poet is the one who finds in our senses a deeper meaning, a greater distance of things. He helps to stretch, to stretch our minds, even if it gets painful at times, to stretch our minds. Um, and remember that it was one of the great themes of the Odyssey. Fools, napios, remember that word, napios, fools in the Greek. It, it means childlike. They don't understand words. The ones who didn't get home in Odysseus' journey were the fools, napios, the ones who don't know language. Because it's by means of language that we can enter more deeply into the reality of the, 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 the depth of reality of our world. Remember the Cyclops, we talked about the Cyclops. What's your name? Odysseus says, nobody. After he's wounded and his friends come along saying, Polyphemus, who's wounded you by, or who's hurt you by force and treachery? And he says, nobody's hurt me by force and treachery. And so they leave and, and we saw the puns in that. The Cyclops had no clue what was going on. I mean, he's, he's got one eye. He's just literal minded. He can't see depths. And, and um, so he didn't see the meaning of nobody. And, and the meaning, the word nobody in Greek, remember I told you, meant um, nothing. And it was also a play, metis, um, on, the, on the word cunning. So in the, in the Greek word that Odysseus used, it, he, it means nothing. He's not there. And in some sense, he's not. He's you know, in disguise. But it also means he's cunning. He's the one who... Um, has to deal with evil, so he uses that well. So, and Calypso means concealed. Um, from what we, we get, the apocalypse. Apocalypse means to unconceal it, to reveal. Odysseus was on Calypso's island for eight years. She keeps him from his kleos, his honor. Remember. If he doesn't get home, he, he will not fulfill his destiny as a man. She wants him to be immortal. So Calypso was not an accidental name. So it's important for us to take words seriously because my, my ultimate argument was there is this profound analogy between words and the word, the form giving, the light giving of Christ. He's the one who brings order. 
reveals things, just the way words do. Remember, in alia essa, in another mode, words show us reality in another mode, like pictures. I gave that example of the women generally who have pictures on the refrigerators of all their kids. Mm -hmm. Reality's there. Their daughters, their children, their grandchildren, their spouses. Unless they hate them in the moment, take them down. Um, Why'd you look at her? <laughs> um, um, in another mode, in alio essa, reality's present to us in another mode. Literature does that. In words. Mm -hmm. Calypso means conceal. Mm -hmm. Conceal. Paco means to uncover, to, un uncover. To, un to take away the concealment. Okay, um, the four themes that I introduced last week were the founding of Rome, one. I should have put that up here, I didn't, so I'm, the founding of Rome. T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis both said that with Virgil, Europe grows up. Um, that Virgil can bring maturity to our understanding of ourselves that Homer couldn't because Homer didn't have anybody before him. Virgil had Homer. So this whole work of translating, of carrying the past forward is something that Virgil can do in a way that Homer never could have. The theme of translation Transforming the past, of carrying the past forward, and redeeming it. That one of the great themes that emerges with Virgil, that we can't get from Homer because he didn't have a great predecessor, is that Virgil can carry the past <coughs> forward, everything that Homer gave him, but he's in a position of changing, learning from it. So I, I said that with Virgil, one more prophetic quality is introduced to the prophetic quality of literature. That quality I'm calling, I don't know what else to call it, it's something like forgiveness, redeeming, a redemptive quality. We, we always think of the past as being fixed. It's over and done. It's set. But Virgil makes us aware of, through his poetry, is the past is not set. He's closer to God. If God is here, there is no, there is no past or future for God. He's in an eternal present. We live in time, so for us there's a present. It's going to be one of the great themes, by the way, of Eliot, before and after. Human beings tend to live too much in before and after. We carry our wounds with us. It was one of the great themes of the Odyssey. We can't, get a, we can't escape our wounds. And we look forward, but living in the present in a meaningful way is really hard. That's what both poems did. They brought us into the present. In Virgil, it's as if a, implicitly this quality of empathy or um, compassion, one with, because he's carrying Homer forward and changing him, transforming him in a spirit of love. So a quality of forgiveness enters into this quality. It's buried, it's implicit, but it's there. The theme of vocation. Aeneas is called. He has a divinely appointed task. He has got to found Rome. So the, the, the divine burden that Achilles and Odysseus carried with them now becomes explicit. The gods are saying, you have this destiny, you have this burden, you must do this. 
and he constantly gets it wrong. Thinks he's understanding it, goes out, he founds a city, he finds that it's wrong. Goes back to the gods and asks again. They clarify it some more. He goes on, it's wrong again. Turns a corner thinking he'll get it. Turns the corner and finds it's vanished. Every time he moves forward thinking he's got it, he loses it. So this whole element of mystery, the location, and the birth. And now think about this in Rome, if this, if this helps us understand something about Rome. Just as soon as we think we're settled, something unsettled us, and we find a rug pulled out and we have to go on. So Rome, even though it's a set city, its very character suggests something ongoing, indefinite, um, more than. Um, Aeneas can never, can, even at the end, we won't see it. It'll, it'll be strange. Um, and I've mentioned Juno's wound. The only other, I, I don't want to go to Juno's wound, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that later. The only other um, theme that I'd like to introduce is this theme of dying cities. We didn't talk about last week, and, and I think probably we won't really get to it until um, next week. <clears throat> Today, I want to focus on this theme of translation, of carrying the past forward and seeing what happens, because Virgil is radically, radically, radically going to change this homeric world. Before we look at this, I want to do um, a couple of things. I want to just give a, a quick overview, a quick description of what, I, what, I, what I'm going to call a description of the whole work. I know that's a, I'm claiming a lot, probably too much, but um, I want to give a description of the whole because, as I've argued before, I don't think we see things very well. We tend to see things in parts. And it's important to see parts in light of the whole, because the whole informs those parts. So this is a, um, an early stab at a description of the whole. Virgil begins his epic with Aeneas telling the story of the fall of Troy. We never get that in, in Homer. Now think about the importance of that just to begin with. We never see Troy destroyed. Not even in the Odysseus. In Odyssey, when he goes back, and tells the story. He picks it up after it. Think about the significance of that. We see these two great heroes, Achilles and Odysseus, standing over their worlds. If Homer described the destruction of Troy, what would it have done to our image of Achilles? I think it would have tarnished it some. That you've got this great hero, splendid, who's defeating everybody. Nobody can beat him at the end. We don't. Hector's but we don't see a whole, a whole civilization, because remember, all these other countries are coming to, in support of Troy. The city is not destroyed, even though we know it will be. But in Virgil, we do. We act, he shows us the destruction of a whole people. And I don't, I don't think that's a small difference, because immediately what's carried forward to Rome is the possibility that a city can be completely wiped out, like Hiroshima. We never get it in, in Homer, but more importantly, Virgil tells the story with a noticeable shift in perspective. In the Iliad, we experience the death of men on both sides. We're always getting the description. In the Iliad, you can't turn a page without getting a description of a spear going through somebody's skull or 
through his genitals and out his eyeballs and with you know the eye hanging from it. Or in one Dolan when he gets his head cut off, he's still talking when his head is you know in, in these things in Homer that are wonderful. Or the crackling eyeball when Odysseus and his men put out the Cyclops eyeball. We experience the death of men on both sides, but the governing perspective is a kind. The slant is taken in order to hold up for us our admiration, the ideal of a hero as the Greeks conceived him. Homer wants to place before us these images of these extremely noble figures, Achilles and Odysseus. In the Iliad and the Odyssey, Achilles and Odysseus stand over their worlds, imaging the very best humans are capable of in defense of their homeland and marriage. They're there fighting for a cause. Everything has changed in the Aeneid. There we experience the destruction of a city, not in terms of what it cost the victors, but in terms of what it cost the conquered. The story is told from a Trojan perspective, not a Greek one, and for the first time we're allowed to experience not what it feels like to triumph over another people, but what it feels like to lose a homeland, those in your family that you love, a way of life, all of the tradition and rituals that tie you to the land, everything that makes it possible for us to say we were bound together. Um, all of the traditions and rituals that tie you to the land, its seasons, its nature, its gods, all the minute of one's existence. For the first time since we put down Homer, we begin to have some sense of what it means to take things for granted. All that they mean to us without knowing it because there's no way we can fully appreciate them until we've lost them. Anybody who's lost a spouse or a child or will know, imagine multiplying that, not just a spouse or a child, an entire way of life, a community, your ties to the earth, everything. So what does Rome mean? Answer that question in light of this. Whatever Rome means, in some ways it means you have to give up nothing less than everything. How close to Christ is that? And I can hear Isaiah saying, the justice is coming, you can't, he won't hurt a broken reed. One of those lines in Isaiah, Christ speaks them when he goes into the temple and that day when he says to the Jews, this day in, in your hearing um, is the fulfillment of the in all the prophecies. He was quoting that line from Isaiah that this justice that will come will not hurt a reed, that will not do this, not do this. Um, and Christ says, give up everything, follow me. So in Virgil, we are leaving, we're, we're, we're leaving one world and entering another. And it increases our, our the sense of complexity, the richness to this theme, this theme of transiting. How do you, how do we pick up the past and carry it forward? He's going to have a lot to say about that on the dying cities. Um, this is the larger context in which virtual renders a, num a number of painful losses, surprises, and sometimes painful discoveries. No book in the Aeneid um, is completed without some great loss. Every chapter in Virgil involves some great loss. He carries loss with him. In order to go forward, he has to lose things. So there's, um, um, there's, n there's not a chapter that passes that doesn't describe some great loss. That's why 
Virgil is called Melancholy Virgil. Melancholy Virgil. Um, okay, I want to just quickly go through um, some, some passages before we look at this theme translation. Just very quickly, because I'm, I, I'm not sure that you would, you would think much about them when, you, when you're reading it for the first time. Um, so let's just quickly, I'm going to go through some of the books and look at some of the lines, just very quickly, and then I want to look at this theme of translation, transformation. It opens with an invocation, and there are three themes announced in the invocation, just as there were in Homer. I sing of warfare and a man of war from the sea coast of Troy in early days. He came to Italy by destiny. To our Lavinian western shore, a fugitive, this captain. He's a fugitive and a man of war. He's in flight. Okay? Um, was that true of Homer? Odysseus? In his? Hmm. No, he was a conqueror. He left Troy destroyed. He's going home. Aeneas is a fugitive. He's in flight from something. Go down a few lines. Till he could found a city and bring home his gods to Latium, land of the Latin race, the Alban lords, and the high walls of Rome. He has a specific calling to found this city. The gods will make it clear. He will get clear as he goes along. And Juno's anger. She's angry because um, she's heard this rumor that Rome will be um, founded and the city that she wanted to see founded, Carthage, will be destroyed. So she's trying to do everything she can to keep Aeneas from fulfilling his destiny. So he's having to overcome Juno's wound. And we have to look at that because that's not a small thing in this. Um, Juno asks um, Aeolus to create these storms. This is how the epic starts. She blows him off course and he ends up at, in, in the um, north of Africa in Carthage, Libya, Carthage. Turn to page six. The bottom of page six. Triply lucky all you men to whom death came before your father's eyes below the wall at Troy. Bravest Danan, Diomedes. Now notice it's not Achilles. Okay, that's the first subtle, what am I going to call it? Slight. I don't know of another word. Diomedes, why could I not go down when you had wounded me and lose my life on Ilium's battlefield? Well, Hector lies there, torn by Achilles' weapon. There, Sarpa, on our great. goes on. Does that sound familiar? Oh, that I should die here in an ocean, swamped by an ocean. It would have been better for me to die at Diomedes' hands. Where have we heard that? The river. Yeah, in the Iliad, remember when Achilles was swamped in the river? Xanthos, the river Xanthos. The men couldn't defeat it, but he ends up in the river. And he has that line where he says, how humiliating that I should die by this act of nature. It would have been better to die on the battlefield. Here's this, so here at the outset, right at the very outset of the Aeneid, before we get to these other things, what we hear is that he's still under that old honor code. 
It would be better for me to die that way than to abide by, I mean, the pride of that. That's that old Kleos. Virgil knows exactly what he's doing. Um, Aeneas is still in that old world. Um, on page 10, take a look. Think about what a man has to do to come. Think about how, I'm saying this is 73. Think about what all of us, man, woman, the struggle that we have trying to come out of our world, the world we, you know, that we grew up. I mean, I'm sure all of you, why do we have confession? I mean, when I go to confession, all I can feel every time is how much the weight of that old me is always a part of me, that our whole struggle is to come out of that world. To, you know, and that was what the Iliad and the Odyssey were about, bringing the heroes coming into the present, leaving the, the, that world behind. On page 10, um, his friends, they've all landed, they're discouraged, and, and, and he says, friends and companions, have we not known hard hours before this, my men who have endured still greater dangers? God will grant us an end to these as well. You sailed by Scylla's rage, your booming crags. You saw the Cyclops' boulders. Now call back your courage and have done with fear and sorrow. Someday, perhaps, remembering even this will be a pleasure. Anything like that in the, in, in the Iliad, I cannot remember. Most of the men taunt each other. Um, in this instance, Aeneas is, is hiding his own feelings in order to encourage his men. Did we ever see Achilles do that? Or Odysseus? I don't remember it. Um, um, Venus will go to Jupiter complaining that Aeneas is facing death and he reassures her that Aeneas will be okay and he gives this long prophecy and I, I mentioned last time that that prophecy in the first book is shows Virgil's awareness of Roman history. Virgil can make that prophecy. He can he can start from the fall of Troy and go to making comments about Caesar and Pompey and Romulus and others because it's all happened. He's got that whole history behind him that he he embeds his text in. This this work is far more rooted in history than Homer's. Homer looks back to a mythic past. Homer's reality is actual history, what's actually taking place. Page um, um, 19, I'm just going to quickly go through some of these. When it comes to Carthage, this is the image he sees <coughs> in the middle of the page. In midtown stood a grove that cast sweet shade where the Phoenicians, shaken by wind and sea, had first dug up that symbol Juno showed them, a proud war horse's head. This, in our words today, this would be um, Carthage's icon. Remember, this is where he, this is the major city of all the cities that he will he will describe in his tales. Carthage is at the heart of them. The the the, the icon is a war horse, a noble war horse. So it's an image of the spirit, the soul we can call it of Carthage. What's the soul of Rome? If any of you read... Piglets. What is it? Piglets. It is. How'd you know that, Tom? I read it. I just saw it in there. Yeah. When, in the, when he gets to... That, that was... That, I, I was struck by that. It was, you know, the, 
one sounds so masculine and the other yes. one's so nurturing. Yes, <coughs> absolutely. Ooh, okay. When he gets to you on the river, if you on the river Tiber the night before he takes a journey, and Tiber the river god will come to him and give him a vivid, a, an image of a sow and her thirty piglets, and he says, "When you see that, you'll know you're in the right place." That will be the first founding. So the icon of Rome is not this noble warlike warhorse. It's a, it's ugly and lowly, which to me is, a, is a, an expression of its Catholicity. It's the place for everybody, not just the noble. If you watch the Greek mind developing, you watch the, all the poets, you certainly see it in, so, in um, Soph um, Sophocles. Thebes was the great noble city. Athens was the just city. So the, whole, the Greek mind was aware that if we didn't come out of this noble past, people would keep killing each other. So at the heart of Carthage is a war horse. At the heart of Rome is a, a sow with her 30 piglets nursling. Nurturing, ugly, lowly, couldn't be farther away from the spiritedness of Carthage. It sure kicks the, uh, the warrior image in the face. For, for sure. It's a, good, it's, a good way it. it's a good way of putting it. Because warriors are heroic and standing above and defeating them. And the soul of Carthage is warhorse. Okay. On page twenty, an interesting thing happens. I, I don't want to. I don't want to look at it, but I just want to cover it just for a second. Aeneas arrives at at the center of the city, and he sees um, the the temple that. Um, Dido has erected in honor of Juno. It's Juno's temple, and on the panels of the temple are the are the episodes making up the Trojan War. So the whole story is there. Now stop and think about this for a second because this is crucial. Um, this is really crucial. I went through this last week, I think. We, we're going to look at the end of book three in a minute. Book three ends. Within, after Aeneas has tried to found all these cities and failed, they come to um, Trapanum, and there they lose his father. So that Aeneas opens, it opens on the death of his father. He's just died. He comes to Carthage. He's going to describe the loss of Troy. He's going to describe losing his wife, Creusa. I want to read that because it's so touching. The Aeneas begins um, with a sense of defeat hanging over him. Right? He's gone, when, when, it, when it opens, we learn that he's been voyaging for almost seven years. So if this is, um, if this is the Aeneid and this is the Odyssey and the Iliad, or you know, put it this way, this is, the, um, this is the Iliad and this is the Odyssey, right? Um, that even that's not going to do it. This is the destruction of Troy. This is where Troy, is destroyed, and, and Odysseus tells the story. It's after the destruction of Troy. The Aeneid begins just with the destruction of Troy, and we'll go back to it. Aeneas has already spent six years on his journey. So when it opens, he's had six years, almost seven years, of nothing but defeat and losses. Nothing but. When he tells the story, we get the opening, the opening story of the destruction of Troy. 
He just lost his father. He lost his wife seven years ago. So there's this sense of defeat hanging over him. Okay, just hold on to that for a second. Is that the world that begins the Iliad and the Odyssey? Nothing close to it. Odysseus is going to go home. His father is at home, alive. His wife is at home, alive. His nurse is at home, alive. We're going to find that Aeneas loses his nurse. So there's nothing but loss. This man is carrying nothing but defeat with him. And I think he's a more extraordinary hero than Achilles or Odysseus. Oh, I can make that case as we go through it. Now stop and think about this. He's here in Carthage, he's looking at Juno's temple, and he's looking at the Trojan War, and Virgil describes him as weeping. He looks at page 20. He's weeping. Middle of page 20, he broke off to feast his eyes and mine on a mere image, sign off and cheeks grown wet with tears. To see again fighting around Troy, the Greeks broken here and ran before it, and goes on and on. The description, when we get to the actual, when Aeneas tells the story and it describes Priam's death, and I mean, it is truly, truly moving. Um, okay, stop for a second. I have a question. Um, when in the Odyssey, when Odysseus tells the story of his adventures, he's with the Phaeacians. He's in this, you know that periodically he weeps when they talk about Troy. Um, but he's telling a story. We didn't see the destruction. His father and his wife and son are all alive. He's going home. Okay? This, my argument was that it's absolutely essential for him to tell that story because those stories are evidence of an act of self-reflection that he's talking about this hero, and there's a distance between him and this hero, and he learns things, so that he's learning all these archetypal figures from all his stories. It's an act of self-reflection. We're meant to see it that it's something he has to do <coughs> if he's to go home and rule. He has to know himself better as a man. So he has to deal with these things that most men don't, the, the archetypes, Circe, Calypso, the Lestrigonese queen, her overpowering bearing, you know, all these things that he had to, he had to learn these things. Here's Aeneas looking at the story. He's lived with seven years of nothing but disappointment and defeat. He's lost his land, his people, his country. He doesn't have a home. He doesn't know where he's going. Um, and he's crying. Now, what's the difference between Aeneas at this point, when he's in, in a few minutes or shortly, he's going to tell the story, just like Odysseus? What's the difference between Aeneas at this point looking at his past and Odysseus telling the story of his past? How well does Aeneas know himself? Well, I would think that, that he, he would sound almost like in a state of despair, of mourning at, at the, the losses he's experienced. But would that cloud his hope for, for the future that he can accomplish that task? Or what? What can he do? This is quite a burden. He's carrying such pain mm -hmm. of all these. Yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, an overused term, like a dark night of the soul. Oh. Yeah, he's, he's suffering. Yeah. But what, you know, now, I know standing there, is he able to see through the pain that there is something in this still? Oh, put it this way, too. Is he the same man? They're depicting this oh, great uh, hero. 
accomplishing all these great deeds. This is the, when she when Dido says this is Aeneas, the great hero, she is so flattered. I mean, it intensifies her love for them when they fall in love. That this is Aeneas. This, when Aeneas looks at himself as his hero, just think about what he's been going through for seven years, seven eight years. Does he know himself? I would think so. Would you? Well, because he's lost everything, and then it, like depression often brings self-reflection. Or a dark night of the soul before you did it. Oh, yeah, and maybe, yeah, it would pre, pre, be the precursor for, for knowing yeah. himself. It would certainly change the image of the hero. Yes. Yeah. so it's like, yes. uh, I mean, he looks in the mirror and says, that's not who I was. Yes, or who I am now. Yeah. Yes. And my question is, can he even answer that? Does he know, he doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know his end. He's lost everything. If any person reaches a point in his life, or she, and you suddenly have lost everything, and you look in, in your pictures of your past, who you were 10 years ago, you know, or 20 years ago, can any of us look at that picture and say, on the outside, as you would in the mirror? I mean, I look at Aeneas and think, he knows he's not that person. They're depicting this great hero. He's undergone seven years of defeat she has no clue about, none. Who in the world does? But once again, this is about reading. We talked about the importance of reading in the Odyssey. Virgil's going to teach us to read differently. Because he's taking this whole homeric world in the, in the Iliad. Put, put it this way. If anybody were to pick up the Aeneid without having read the Iliad and the Odyssey, would they see the depths of meaning at all? Would they have a clue? They wouldn't have a reference point. They wouldn't see all the illusions that are buried because they're so deep in the text. So when any of us read something, if we don't carry the history of it with us, how much do we not see? When he looks at the image of himself as this great hero, standing where he is, not knowing where he's going, can he really say that's him? And can he really say, can he really say, I know who I am? I mean, my sense is he, he, he's weeping to see it, the loss, but... This is a radically different figure from Odysseus in the Odyssey. No, I think because you said before, um, traditions and homeland, all these things he's lost. Yeah. He doesn't have anything to, to relate to yeah. anymore. No reference points. No. They're gone. Yeah. And that's one reason why it's so understandable that he's going to have an affair with Dido. It would be so much easier to have an affair sexually than to deal with this. Who in the world is he? In fact, he's, when, when Mercury comes to him, he's going to have earrings and a, um, or a studded sword with jewelry. I mean, he, he, he's effeminate. He's, he's become completely effeminate. He, he's lost his way. The gods are going to come and say, Get back on track. That's right. Yeah. Get what? Get back on track. I'll get back on track. Okay, quickly, because I'm late and I don't... I'm, Quickly, I want to do in book two. Um, after after um, Venus um, tricks Dido into falling in love with um, Ascanius, Aeneas's son, Dido falls in love with him, and then in turn in love with Aeneas, and um, they begin this heated, passionate romance. Um, I just want to touch on a couple of things that go to this theme of of translation because it is it is the major it, it, it's a way of illustrating how buried Homer is in the Aeneid and if you've not read Homer how much you will miss 
reading it. Um, turn to page um, 45, I'm not sure. One day, the, the Greeks look outside the walls of the city and they see this Trojan horse. And this man named Sinon, who had his hands tied, appears and tells them that uh, he was persecuted by whom? Remember? By Ulysses. Um, sorry. I'm, oh, I meant to. I, I've got to hold on. I've got to look at page 36. Pages 36 to 40. I wanted to go through some lines in the book, too, but we don't have time. Look at um, page. 36. Down two-thirds of the way then. In royal councils we did well with honor, then by the guile and envy of Ulysses. You all know who Ulysses is, right? It's Odysseus. It's the Roman name for him. Nothing unheard of there. I mean, he says that's his way of saying that Nobody's in the dark about Ulysses, that his nature is nothing but guile and envy. Um, most of the Trojans um, want to keep the horse out because they're, they're afraid that they may be being tricked here. Um, on page, page 37 at the bottom, they call out um, Calchas. The, the, remember, he was the bird watcher at the beginning of the Iliad. And look at, at the top of 38. Um, looked on in silence. For 10 days the seer kept still, kept under cover, would not speak of anyone or name a man for death till driven to it by, at last by Ulysses' cries. And look at the word, by prearrangement. So clearly Ulysses and Calchas had gotten together and schemed to do this. Um, and they say, what should we do with this horse? And then Sinan tells them the story on page 39, the middle of the page, um, then the, uh, page 39, then the night came when Diomedes and that criminal Ulysses dared to raid her holy shrine. They stole the image of Pallas Athena, and in reparation for that sin, they had to make this horse and offer it as a propitiation to the gods. So, top of 40, so Calchas read the portents worn by him. They set this figure up in reparation for the Palladians stolen to appease the offended power. Now, Simon says at the top of 39, eternal fires of heaven, he began, powers inviolable. I swear by thee as by the altars and blaspheming swords I got away from and the God's white brands I wore. He says, they did it injustice to me, and I swear by the gods that what I'm telling you is the truth. Well, you know what happens. They take the horse in the walls, and that night, the Greeks will slip out and open the gates and, and begin to kill. At the end of the Iliad, we, we have an image of Achilles sort of standing over the city. He's just killed Hector. He's this extraordinary figure. I mean, I, I can't help but admire him. I think we're meant to admire him. Here, so he's defeated Hector, 
by some great gift given to him by the gods. Remember we've talked about this, that he changes the honor code. That all of the men up until that time lived with the sense that honor is determined by booty, by wealth. And Achilles gave that all up. So once he gave up everything, he had nothing to fear, nothing to lose. And he becomes this extraordinary figure. So the strength that he acquires at the end, the defeat, and he's not been able to defeat Hector for 10 years. Now at the end he can. And I think the assumption is, though, the, we're, the conclusion we have to come to is, when he gave up everything in rounds, he accepted his death, he re-enters the war, he has nothing to be afraid of. It's like a man, an alcoholic, giving up drinkers, you know, when any of us give up something that keeps us fearful that suddenly we get freed and, so we've got an image of this man who has this extraordinary strength, and that's the image we're left with. Um, um, and so there's no reason to think anything other than that this nobility will carry forward, the city will be destroyed. And here, we're shown that the, the city was not destroyed by these courageous men in their bravery or their nobility or their integrity of their souls. The city was destroyed by guile and treachery and blasphemy. That the Greeks, and this is, this is what Virgil thinks of the Greeks, that Achilles and, and Odysseus are not these extraordinary heroes that, he, you know, that he's been showing us. They are these despicable figures who resorted to trickery. On um, 21, at the top of 21, Um, this is the earliest reference I think we get to uh, Achilles. But she, her face averted, would not raise her eyes. And there was Hector dragged. I think this is the description around Juno's temple. of the. And there was Hector dragged around Troy walls three times. And, and there for gold Achilles sold him. Is that the way Homer describes Achilles in his meeting with Priam? Remember, the, this, the scene between Priam and Achilles was one of the most touching, I think, in all of literature. They weep with each other, they cry. Achilles protects him from Agamemnon. He says, sleep outside, I don't want Agamemnon to get you. There's this great, I mean, what we have to call love of this old king. The, remember, they were both enemies. Achilles was the man who killed all of Priam's son. Priam is the one who was responsible for the death of Patroclus indirectly. I mean, he lost his. So they're both looking at the men who gave them, the, who were the causes of the greatest wounds, and they weep together. Here's Virgil, page 21 at the top. Um, three times in there for gold, Achilles sold him. Okay, I'm going to read one more line. Look at book 6, line 733. And we'll stop at this. Book 6, 733. When... Actually, it's uh, page 177. Go back, to, go back to line 665. When Odysseus, when, sorry, when Aeneas is describing the fall of Troy, he describes himself looking for Diphobus. It's one of the great Trojan heroes, and he goes running. Diphobus is married to um, um, Helen. 
because he married Helen after Paris died. So Paris is dead at this point. That's how much time has elapsed in the war. Diphobus, so years, or time went, enough time went on for Paris to be killed, Achilles to be killed. Diphobus is married to Helen. Aeneas is looking for him and can't find him. When he gets to the underworld, in the middle of his underworld episode, he will meet Diphobus. And um, he will apologize for not burying and, and Diphobus will say, you did what you should have done. Don't, don't concern yourself. Here's this description on page 177. At the top, not, not so Agamemnon's phallics, cheeps of the Danans, seeing the living man in bronze that glowed through the dark air, they shrank in fear. So as Aeneas approaches in the underworld, all these Greeks run because they remember it in this life as a terrifying warrior. Some turned and ran as once when routed to the ships while others raised a battle shout or tried to mouths agape, mocked by the whispering cry. Here next he saw Diphobus, Priam's son, who married Helen, mutilated from head to foot, his face and both hands cruelly torn, ears shorn away, nose to the nose holes, lopped by a shameful stroke, barely knowing the shade who quailed before him. He is so mutilated that he almost can't recognize him. Barely knowing the shade who quailed before him, covering up his tortured face, Aeneas spoke out to him in his known voice, Diphobus, gallant officer in Hytuser's line, who closed the brutal punishment, who chose, who had, and goes on, or Diphobus says down below, you left undone nothing, my friend, but gave all ritual due, Diphobus do a dead man's shade. My lot and the Lyconian woman's ghastly doing sank me in this, Laconia is Sparta. What woman is he talking about? Who's the woman of Sparta? Married Menelaus, king of Sparta. I am Nestor. Oh, Helen. Oh, Helen. Menelaus is one. Agamemnon. That was so obvious I didn't say it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Menelaus' wife, Sparta. Remember they lived when Odysseus went, Tele Telemachus went to Pylos, or Sparta. Um, Helen betrayed her husband. She let, she let the Greeks in, and Diphobus, who had married her after Paris was killed, gets treacherously slaughtered. So just for a second, what do we, here's, Achilles is a, a thief, greedy. Odysseus is cunning, full of guile, cheating. And worse, they're blasphemers. They use the gods to trick the Trojans to bring that horse in. That's how Troy is destroyed. So what are we doing? Is this the prejudice, the, 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 the racial prejudice of a Roman who hates Greeks? What's Virgil doing with this Homer? We've been, I mean, you've been listening to me say nothing but good words praising Homer for couple of months now, because I love those two works. It's hard not to love Achilles. And Here we enter Virgil's world, and suddenly these men that we've been asked to admire are despicable. What's Virgil doing? And not only them, but Helen, who is this, I mean, what, can anybody say anything good about Helen? And she's a treacherous, vile, deceitful woman. What's, and, and so here's the question. Um, 
what's Virgil doing in the way that he carries this work forward? So one of the, one of the questions to ask right now is what's, what's his critique of the Greek world? What kind of changes do we see in the Greek heroes? I've just gone through them. And implicitly, what's his critique of Troy? This is the past. He cannot go on to found this future if he doesn't learn from the past. Right? So what's his critique of the Greek world? And, and implicitly, what's his critique of the Troy that he just left? If he goes on to build Rome based on his experience as a Trojan, will Rome ever be what it's supposed to be? Will he even, I mean, how will he know? Because we've just said when he looks at the murals on Juno's temple, he's not that same man. Um, so here in the beginning of the Iliad, we see him critiquing this Greek world. It's, it's, it, these, Cleos, remember his first words? I wish I'd been killed by um, Diomedes rather than diet. That old Cleos, that old sense of honor, that old code, that old ways, those are the things that have to be left behind. And he has to see them as they are. So this whole work of translation is right at the heart of what Virgil's doing with Rome. If Rome means anything, we can't see what it is without seeing what it's not, what's being left behind in order for this, this extraordinary city that's the root of a center of our faith, what's behind it, what's hidden in Rome. So. Well, he looks like he has to look at all the corruption and stare it in the face to know what really happened. You know, one moment you can look heroic, the next moment you see it's, it's based on betrayal or, or some manipulation or cunning uh, attitudes that are maybe not look, you know, on the surface may look heroic, but on the other mm -hmm. hand, you mm -hmm. have this other dimension. But you would have to have somebody step back. It's like, you know, you look, you know, they call it the, the fog of war. You know, or life generally, because this isn't just war, it's a whole culture, these, this Greek culture that in its way, you know. So he's, he's criticizing that. He's trying to put a new perspective on it, understand it differently. And if he doesn't wrestle with that, he can't move on. For sure. Yeah. <coughs> when we meet next time, I'm going to look at um, the dying cities because they're going to continue this critique. Um, and the Dido episode, which is going to be so important. Um, let me just say this in passing. This is just a generalization, but it's, it's pretty accurate. The, the, the Romans admired the Greeks terribly. If you read the Cicero and Caesar and Livy, the historians, if you, if you read the writings of those men, you know how much they admired the Greeks. Um, Socrates, the, the philosopher, was greatly admired, greatly admired. Cicero admired him tremendously. They imitated them everywhere. They imitated, if you look at the, it's interesting, if you watch them do their artwork or their writing, they're great imitators of Greece. The art is, if you look at the Roman statues, they're, they're like the Greek statues in their depictment of the perfection of the human body. But the difference is, when you look at a Roman statue next to a Greek statue, the Greek statue is idealized, time is out of it. If you look at a Roman statue, they're worn, wrinkles in their faces. It's their awareness that in their mind, the Greeks lived too much in a mythic world outside of time. The Romans were born down by time. So they greatly admired the Greeks everywhere. They, they couldn't say enough.
but they were deeply, deeply critical because in their mind there were serious things wrong with the Greeks. And those things are going to emerge. I'm just going to leave it there. Next week when, when we meet, I'll be clear in what's, it'll become clear what those things are. But right now what we see is, from the Homeric, or the Virgilian perspective, that underneath this tendency to idealize these great heroes, Achilles and Odysseus, were these awful, what to call them, disorder sins, these terrible, despicable kinds of qualities in these men. So we're getting a very different reading of the human person now as we leave the Greek world and enter the Roman. Would we say this is where the first idea of a character defect shows up? <laughs> I'd say it's in Homer. If you look at Thersites in the opening book, remember Thersites is that guy who wants to quarrel and remember I read the passage. He's, he's the one that says Achilles is uh, a merciful man. He, he's got no gall. He, he's the one who's arguing to go home. And it's so clear that he's a he's human flaw. But, but certainly not on this scale. I mean, you're. I mean, that's a perceptive thing to say to him because it becomes more, it becomes deeper and more complex here with Virgil, for sure, for sure. Sorry, I'm sorry we went over, I'm really sorry. I'm trying to hold myself and it's still a big fault of mine. Enjoy. Yeah. I assume we're going to end at 11. So no, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm aiming for a